Hello and welcome to Adam vs. the Man. Today is Thursday, July 2nd, 2020, and I promise today I will not talk about the virus named after the beer. Gosh darn it. I just did it, didn't I? I, there, I just did it. You can't... It's... It's not even a significant health phenomena in the history of the global human petri dish and yet i i can't i can't avoid it you can't avoid it's just it's this cloud hanging over the entire world and it's not uh, we're talking about a virus that has a lower mortality rate than trying to spend a counterfeit 20 dollar bill in minneapolis and it's not the virus it's not the virus that is the cloud. It's the fear around it. It's the government response. I want. I want to talk about the economy. I want to talk about jobs. I want. I want to talk about what's going on in the world. That's that's more important. And you know what? There's there's nothing. There's there's nothing that I can talk. I, I mean, I'm looking. There's nothing it doesn't touch. I want to talk about Donald Trump. Can you talk about the president? Can you talk about government right now without talking about coronavirus policy? Can you talk about the criminal justice situation without talking about corona and, and people getting corona in jail? No. I mean, can you talk about Internet censorship and not mention how this is being used? To further censorship online, to, to control, to lock down the conversation. This looks like a reboot of the economy. As in, we're going to shut it down and reboot it with a new operating system. What's that new operating system? Well, is it is it really that? Well, the new operating system is government gets to shut you down whenever they feel like it. Whatever their sponsors want them to, because it's going to benefit them economically. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. That's the whole point. Now, with the jobs numbers today, we go to zerohedge.com. Great job numbers. Trump booms as payrolls soar by record 4.8 million Mm -hmm. crushing expectations. And, oh, my gosh, what, what a dystopia the new normal already is. These statistics didn't really mean anything before this. Seasonally adjusted non-farm payroll. And you go, well, what the heck does that mean? And I urge you to keep in mind through all of this right now that 83.695483%, that's a very precise number, of all statistics, are total made-up BS designed to manipulate you. I mean, even even yesterday, my brother, who's a health professional, sends me this chart that says, look, look how COVID has overtaken all these other causes of death, and it's got this timeline, and it shoots up, and oh my gosh, in just a, just a few months, COVID is, uh, on this chart, become the leading cause of death, and you go, that's COVID versus various causes of death. It's comparing it to the flu and suicide and a bunch of other 
I don't want to say minor, but second-tier causes of death behind, you know, heart attack, cancer, all the chronic conditions that uh, Americans are killing themselves with, you know. And then you, you the, the jobs report today, it, it's more propaganda. I mean, if, if you kill 50 million jobs and then 5 million of them come back, and that's, that's a record number of jobs being created, well, yeah, of course the president can turn that into some kind of spin propaganda for his floundering re-election campaign. The story at Zero Edge goes, in our preview of today's jobs report, we remarked that the only thing that was certain about the June payrolls number is just how uncertain it was. Dropping the top and bottom 10% of payrolls forecasts still leaves a range of 1.65 to 5 million jobs, an extremely wide band that reflects the multiplicity of shocks hitting the U.S. labor markets, according to Stephen Englander. Art Cashin echoed just how much confusion there was by noting that, quote, most traders are somewhat skeptical of all payroll data, feeling that the sharp reopenings and then reopening rollbacks have distorted the data. I think that's putting it mildly. So with so much confusion out there and nobody really sure what to expect, moments ago the BLS reported that in keeping with the huge band of possibilities, in June the U.S. economy added a whopping record 4.767 million jobs, crushing expectations of 3.058 million and indicating that the V-shaped recovery, if only on the BLS servers, is well on track. And this goes to the bifurcation of the economy that's happening right now. There's a split between the white market and the black market. And, you know, this is obviously uh, a misnomer because white suggests good and black suggests bad in this case. Gee, I think there's, 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 there's some other inherent message being sent when they use these terms, right? But no, what is the, what is the white market, the government-approved market, the regulated-by-violence market, the exploitation market of everybody who doesn't work under the table and has taxes withheld from their paychecks. Just And, and every business that, that operates in that way, right? What's the black market and the gray market, really? Part of the parts of the economy that the government can't control, that, the, that it cannot exploit. I mean, we look at this new normal. What is this? What is, what is the new rebooted system? It's a system where the government can pull the strings of the economy more than ever before. They can decide. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Hunger Games. Who lives? Who dies? No, but it, they get to decide who works and who doesn't. And you know, maybe, maybe it's not as harsh as who lives and who dies, but there are implications Massive, massive implications. And then also from Zero Hedge today, want to kill the economy? Keep threatening more lockdowns. See, that's all it takes. The first time the lockdowns came, the job market imploded. 40 million Americans lost their jobs, and at least 20 million of those are still unemployed. That's, again, you, know, you use these government numbers, you've got to read between the lines. It's probably a lot worse than that. Income in America fell to such low levels that federal tax revenues 
fell by more than 50% year over year in April and remained down more than 25% in May. These are losses of historic proportions. It remains to be seen if the country even began anything that could realistically be called a recovery in June. After all, new unemployment claims were still at over a million new applicants, according to the most recent data. That's still off the charts bad. Nonetheless, we continue to hear about how any day now we'll see evidence of a V-shaped recovery in which jobs and economic growth will come roaring back. And like we saw with the jobs numbers, with Trump saying, oh, yes, these job numbers are great. Well, what was the tweet from you know, news conference at 930? Great job numbers. So the end of the, uh, the jobs report article on Zero Edge goes, how political was today's report? We will leave it to readers to decide, especially when moments after the report, Trump, who knew the numbers yesterday, praised the great job numbers and held a press conference at 9.30 a.m. today for a victory lap. That said, it was a modest downgrade from last month's Trump tweet that, quote, these numbers are incredible. So to the other story, also from Tyler Dirt and Zero Edge, but now we're already seeing governments, by which I mean a small cadre of governors and unelected bureaucrats who currently rule by decree, announcing another round of business closures and ongoing government regulations that micromanage every aspect of a business's daily interactions with customers. This is likely to greatly slow any V-shaped recovery that might have been forming, and it will give businesses reason to further put off plans for implementing efforts at recovering from the economic crash experience in April and May. And for any business owner that has anything that is affected in any way by this, and I, I can't imagine any that isn't, you know, that the fall in tax revenue, that's a really big marker of the failing of the white market and the overall economic decline we're experiencing that isn't captured in the jobs numbers. Because for a lot of people, hours have been hugely cut. And you're, if you're, I mean, oh man, my heart goes out to everybody in that position. You're in a job where, you know, maybe you're working on commission, maybe you're, you're working hourly, but your income has been cut by, or your hours have been cut by, you know, 50% or something. And you don't know. You don't, you're, and you're holding on to this job like it's your lifeline. It's your thing. This, this, Fragile agreement that you have with an employer. Fragile, certainly now, in this era of lockdowns and unlockdowns and re-lockdowns, and who knows what's coming next. And with that uncertainty, you can't plan for anything except going along with the whims of government at the behest of their corporate and banking class sponsors. That's where we find ourselves today. What governments all over the world has done, have done, is put this cloud over the world that has cast a shadow, which will take a long time to get rid of. And we have a very interesting show for you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Comment Jim Freedom. I don't know, CJ, do we have him backstage connected right now? Let's see if we can pull up comments, Jim Freedom.
He is currently driving to the Yaples. Well, I guess that's technically how they pronounce their name. You might know them as the Yaples. They are our caretakers here at the Garden of Freedom. And over the next year, making the transition to their own property that they bought here in the area. And today is a very big day for them. They are having a prefab cabin dropped off at their property. Uh, scheduled for 16 minutes from now, Jim Freedom is with them in order to get drone footage and, and video of the delivery of their cabin. And this is uh, just a really exciting day for them. We were hoping that the way the timing would work out, that Jim would be able to join us from his phone and watch the comments. But instead, today we have Comment CJ Abernathy, our intrepid producer, joining us from South Dakota. How are you doing this morning, CJ? A man of many hats and talents, sir, I am. But uh, I hope to uh, step up for the comment section today and represent you well and get relevant points to Mr. Adam Kokesh today. Our guest is uh, backstage and he will be ready to go. So uh, other than that, sir, let's start the show. All right. Very excited. We got Walter Block coming on in just 45 minutes, and uh, Walter Block is the uh, interesting victim of an anti-slavery petition at Loyola University in New Orleans. Very much looking forward to that interview. But, CJ, you know, before we go any further, we do have a contest today. Let me get my mic. Whoa. Excuse me. Technical difficulties in the No Force One studios. Um, I'm going to get my mic here. Right, what, am I am I all blurry now? What happened? <laughs> no, if you don't mind, sir, um, I can play the audio without having to be your mic, and it won't it's okay. get away I got, the thing. I got, I got, a, I got a specific clip here. I, I got I to, gotta, like, baby this one, I think. Oh, let's see. So this video clip, um, I, you know, I, I want to – let's see. I got I got, It's got to load here for me now. Um so this was I'll give I'll give some people I'll give people a clue here. This is from 1962. And hmm, I'll say, you know, what makes this relevant to to today is that it was in response to an incident of police brutality. That's all I'm going to say for now. I'm going to play uh, about 10, 15 seconds of this clip, maybe 20 seconds. It, this is kind of an obscure one. I, I don't expect most members of our audience to get this. So you can win membership in the Producers Club, which gets you backstage access and all of our exclusive Patreon content. We have a, we have some really cool stuff coming up. Uh, yesterday we got the rocket stove oven fired up here on the property. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can go to Instagram.com slash The Garden of Freedom. CJ, you want to pull that up real quick? I want, I want to show people this because I, we, we, have, we have kind of a name for this, uh, and we turn to the audience to see if, if they could come up with a name for our greenhouse, greenhouse dome where we're going to be growing uh, cannabis legally here in Arizona. And they, uh, they, they came up with D- Dank Dome or Dome of the Dank. Dank Dome for short, I guess. And so what we have here, thank you, CJ, for pulling up that picture in particular. This is me and Peter and Jim proudly standing outside or in front of the 
combined rocket stove oven that we finished yesterday and fired up for the first time. Cooked a pizza in there and uh, boiled some water and, and heated up some soup, made coffee this morning on it. That's, that's what I'm enjoying here, a little uh, wood-fired coffee. And uh, we, our, we, we like to have good, clever, fun names for our projects here. Now that this one is, is I, it, it's got some touches, touch-ups and a couple little improvements we might do later, but it's functionally done. It's in service. So we want to name this thing. You know, it's a, a two rocket stove tops and a rocket oven in the middle. We were thinking the rocket box, but that's not very fun. Food truck, the food truck, right? It, it, clever, but I, I just like our outhouse is called the voting booth. You know, a deliberate funny misnomer, but uh, I think we can do better than that. So maybe maybe somebody has uh, a, an idea for that. But here's the contest to be a member of the Producers Club. If you can't join our Patreon for $10 a month, this is how you get the exclusive access. So guess the speaker, and you'll probably win. Uh, this is from 1962. This is in Los Angeles in response to an incident of police brutality with the LAPD. And if uh, if there if we need a tiebreaker of multiple people guess the speaker, then um, I guess we uh, will we'll have a follow-up tiebreaker tie question. I suppose um, if you can name the, uh, the incident, yeah, if you can describe the incident that this is in response to, that would be a tiebreaker. So here we go. clip if you can guess the speaker you can win a membership to the adam versus the man producers club today so now jumping into our stories you've probably already heard the headline that we see from nbc new york jeffrey epstein confidant Ghislaine maxwell arrested on sex abuse charges as soon as i saw this i just i had to tweet out Without even looking, I'm going to go ahead and assume that hashtag Ghislaine Maxwell didn't kill herself is already trending. Prosecutors allege Maxwell helped Epstein traffic and abuse underage girls. He died by suicide awaiting trial last year. Jeffrey Epstein, confidant Ghislaine, and yeah, the pronunciation, I think the, 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 the proper French is Ghislaine, uh, was arrested Thursday morning in New Hampshire. Maxwell will face charges that she conspired with the disgraced financier to sexually abuse underage girls. Epstein, a friend to presidents and captains of industry, died by suicide last August while awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges. Uh, yeah, right. And, you know, I loved when that happened because it was a moment of awakening. For a lot of people, they, it's, you know, one of those things where you go, uh, I, I think they went too far. And it was a bit of a chink in the armor. I, even leading up to the coronavirus shutdown. Oh man, I mentioned it again. When we had 
all of the, uh, you know, doubt out there where people are going, yeah, I don't believe, like, there was a significant portion of, of, of America that said, well, this is coming from government. We don't really believe this. And uh, the backdrop to that is just everything leading up to that that has discredited government. And one of those is the death of Jeffrey Epstein, who died in custody in a, a jail cell in New York, at least we think, or I, I mean, <laughs> so the official story goes, I should say. Uh, and, and there were, you know, so there, there are basically three competing theories on the Jeffrey Epstein death. One, that the story is more or less true, that, that, that he did kill himself. Uh, two, that he was killed in jail, right? And, and this could have happened a number of ways. Uh, there's so much, like, and, and this seems, you, you know, the, the, the official story seems really unbelievable when you look at the evidence for, you know, the, these, these other theories where you go, well, the surveillance tape magically disappeared from the jail when this was happening. The guards just happened to be, uh, uh, you know, not in the area when they were supposed to be. He had a, a broken bone in his, in his neck, you know, that would suggest he didn't actually hang, like, hang himself. Hanging yourself in a jail cell <clears throat> is actually relatively challenging. He was supposedly on suicide watch at the time. And so right away, hashtag Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself blew up. The third competing theory, though, is that he was snuck out of there. And, you know, I'm more inclined to believe that now than than the, either of the other theories. Although, you know, just that he killed himself and the official story is correct. It's like, mm, no. And, you know, my favorite meme uh, from the time was, uh, it said, you know, asterisk, Epstein kills self. America and, you know, colon, and then it's got this army of Alex Joneses, like, storming the camera, and you go, yeah, yeah, everybody realized, hmm, there's something really, really fishy about this. What leads me to think that the third possibility is most likely at this point is that there were a lot of people talking about a sort of dead man switch for Epstein. Now, remember, Epstein, uh, and they're saying his his uh, his estate is is, some, is worth something like five hundred million dollars, and now uh, some of his uh, victims can sue the estate. And he left the, you know the entire he revised his will like two days before he was uh, before he died, and then uh, decided in that in revised will to leave all of his assets to his brother. You know, just fishy stuff here. But a guy who's worth $500 million and is connected the way that Jeffrey Epstein was is going to have some kind of dead man switch. Like, when he dies, documents are going to be released. That didn't happen. So, if you think about who he is, was, um, and, and, and what did he want? You know, Whatever a man wants, his own private sex island. Although, for him, it was also uh, pedophilia. <laughs> you know that. Mm, uh, yeah. Uh, so he could have that still, right? You know, and, and it seems at the time I theorized that Jeffrey Epstein got retired. You know, he got too visible. He got too much. Uh, he got to be too much of a liability for his friends. 
and they said, you know what, dude, we, you know, we gotta, mm, we, we gotta put a stop to this. And Trump wants to go, let's, I want to make it look like I'm doing something about this. So satisfy all the Q theories. Look at all the pedophiles being locked up. And, of course, that's nonsense, because if that was true, if there was really a legitimate push within the Trump administration, oh, yeah, we're going to get all the pedophiles locked up, we're going to bust all the child sex trafficking rings, then why did it take so long to bust Ghislaine Maxwell? So uh, she was arrested by the FBI in Bedford, New Hampshire, around 8.30 a.m. on charges she conspired with Epstein to sexually abuse minors and is expected to appear in federal court later today. The six-count indictment alleges she helped groom girls as young as 14 years old, going back as far as 1994. In some instances, Maxwell was present for and participated in the sexual abuse of minor victims, according to the indictment. She is the daughter of media baron Robert Maxwell Ghislaine, was a one-time girlfriend of Epstein's and was at the high-flying investors' side for decades. But she was also alleged to have helped Epstein groom teen girls for sex with the rich and powerful. One of those teens, Virginia Roberts Giuffre, uh, Giuffre uh, leveled that charge against Maxwell in a 2015 defamation suit, as have a number of other women since. Epstein, a registered sex offender who nonetheless kept Company with presidents and captains of industry was arrested last summer on new federal charges of exploiting dozens of underage girls in New York and Florida in the early 2000s. Now, remember, now, as, as a registered sex offender, it's because he was charged with this uh, years ago and did a significant time in a minimal security facility where he was allowed to leave for work during the day at different times. I mean, it was like you know, a, a sort of barely jail, it, 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 whatever the, the sort of, it was a really weird circumstance. And right away you go, something's up with this. And then he was allowed out and allowed to go back to doing what he was doing. So he's definitely got dirt. I mean, this, this is the, the, the sort of obvious racket. You know, he's got the Lolita Express airplane where he's got his private jet and he flies people to his, his private island. Uh, there are a lot of people implicated in this. Of course, Prince Andrew seems to have avoided uh, escaping uh, accountability for his role in this, although that hasn't fully shaken out yet. We saw that Prince Andrew was, uh, I, I forget what the exact term was, but sort of relieved of his royal duties, kicked out of the royal. That doesn't happen. You know, the Queen would not have done that. I mean, having lost... Uh, Harry and Meghan already this year. Like, she would not have done, and this was before this, but uh, before Harry and Meghan, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle uh, renouncing their their royal duties. Uh, But Prince Andrew, you know, it's, it's a major blow to the credibility of the royal family for the queen to say, yeah, you're out because of this Epstein pedophile thing. That, to me, is, that's the, that's the, there, there was a trial. The Queen held a trial behind closed doors for Prince Andrew and decided that he was guilty. Or at least decided that, and not only that he was guilty, probably also decided that he couldn't hide his guilt. Because if he could have, he would have. And she probably would have let him, right? If, 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 if she knew that, with confidence, that he could really hide it, that there wasn't 
absolutely damning evidence. So Bill Richardson, Bill Clinton, a number of other, I mean, Donald Trump, uh, people who have, you know, been to events, who have, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of those have been to the island itself, Epstein's private sex island. Now, according to the story, he attempted suicide in custody in late July and then died after another suicide attempt in early August. Two of the guards tasked with monitoring Epstein now face federal charges for not properly supervising him before his death. That's going to be a really interesting story to follow to see how that falls out. You know, if the uh, if they have an open trial, if the guards are able to testify. I mean, I, they, there's so much at stake here among so many of the extremely rich and powerful uh, that they will kill people to protect this, uh, to protect their various rackets. One day before suicide, a federal appeals court released the transcript of a 2016 deposition in which Epstein repeatedly refused to say whether Maxwell had procured young girls for him. Maxwell now faces multiple counts of perjury for allegedly lying in her own deposition about Epstein's sexual activities. She has stayed below the radar since his death. The speculation swirled about whether she could face repercussions for her friend's alleged abuses. As uh, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass said in a statement Thursday, Epstein got a crooked sweetheart deal years ago that protected his co-conspirators like Maxwell. Maxwell has been on the run for months because she, too, hoped to escape justice. We can't let that happen again. Her victims deserve their day in court. Now, the thing about being on the run, like, she let herself get arrested. She was in New Hampshire. Not a really easy place to hide. You know, and it wasn't like there was some crazy chase or anything. This has an air just of being all staged. Sass, who was a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has pushed aggressively for the Justice Department to investigate what was described as a sweetheart deal that gave Epstein and others immunity from federal charges in 2007. Then Miami U.S. Attorney uh, Alex Acosta was involved in negotiating that deal, and 12 years later, he resigned as Labor Secretary amid criticism of the arrangement. Why would he resign? Unless he did something wrong. What? There must have been something very wrong about that deal. Wouldn't be surprised if he had some kind of dirt. Where Where is Alex Acosta today? Where are they now? Who knows? Obviously, what we learn from this story is that government doesn't really care about crack da- cracking down on pedophilia or sex trafficking. Maybe some people in government do. You know, there's some really do-gooder FBI agents out there. But if they did, if, if as a whole government cared about this, they would end the prohibition on prostitution. Now, remember, if you can't say frick, you can't say frick the government, as Lenny Bruce almost said. And since we're on YouTube, I can't say frick. But as George Carlin said about this, selling's legal, tricking's legal. Why isn't selling freaking legal, right? It's a victimless crime. If it's voluntary, someone wants to exchange money for sexual services, there's nothing morally inherently wrong with that. Certainly not that would, you know, some people want to have different definitions of those words and say prostitution is wrong and bad, and that's fine. Given that even, you are not justified in 
violently interfering with that voluntary transaction. And the making of it illegal, the fact that most of society goes along with, oh, yes, prostitution should be illegal, which is to say government should use violence to stop prostitution, which is to say to drive it underground, which is to say to create a black market for it, which then creates the space for child sex trafficking. You look in the United States, where is the child sex trafficking happening? It's on the, the edge of the general black market for prostitution. You go where prostitution is legal in the, in the limited areas, uh, like where, where the Bunny Ranch is in, in Nevada, you know, you don't have these problems because it's in the open. It's accountable to the public, to, to, to scrutiny. And so you don't have the child sex trafficking that we have in the rest of the country. And it's teenagers, underage girls being pimped out of hotels, motels, and, and you know, just John's going along with it because they're all afraid to report it, right? If you're a John and, and you didn't think that you were getting a, a minor and you show up to a hotel room and you go, hey, how old are you? Well, she goes, well, I'm, I'm 17 or she says, I'm 18. You go, yeah, right. Well, you can leave, and, but you can't report it. Oh, yeah, I was soliciting prostitution and I uncovered child sex trafficking. No, you can't do that. But then you go to the bigger levels and you go, well, gee, Jeffrey Epstein, he's Lane Maxwell. Why is this arrest happening now instead of, I, I mean, I, I should have been years and years and years ago, right? It should have been, should have been back when Epstein first faced charges from this. And, and, you know, as, as Sass said, the sweetheart deal that forced Alex Acosta to resign, I mean, years later, what, what was it, 2007? Twelve years later, Alex Acosta resigns. Why is that? Because government is a way to protect people from accountability for crimes. If you're a murderous a-hole, you just want to beat people up because you were picked on in school and you want to get revenge against the bullies, well, you can become a cop and then you can kill people with immunity. All you have to do is file false reports. Oh, I felt threatened. I feared for my life. He had a gun. You can plant weapons on suspects. And, you know, not so much with body cameras, but still, look at what cops get away with. If you want to be a thief, if you want to be a drug runner, if you want to be a, if you want to be a drug kingpin, maybe not a kingpin, but like a, you know, mid-level drug boss, how many of those are operating from within police departments, sheriff's departments? We've seen this. We've seen even now recently charges against law enforcement in the United States for pedophilia. So no, government will never be the answer to this problem of, of, of this particular evil of, of child sex trafficking. And I'm, I, I'm hopeful that stories like this expose the ridiculousness of the greatest protective force for pedophiles saying, yeah, we're going to take care of them pedophiles. Speaking of which, we have some Jeffrey Epstein news related to Donald Trump from Indy100.com, the independent. Protesters call out Trump by erecting statue of Jeffrey Epstein so we can really remember history. And this is awesome. So a lot of the report, I, someone sent me this in the Producers Club Telegram chat yesterday, and I was like, ah, my, my former home state of New Mexico. And it was like, we don't know anything about this. What's, you know, what's going on? 
uh, you know, and, and, and the statue had disappeared. It turned out it wasn't actually a bronze statue, obviously, for the prank. They didn't make a real bronze statue, or they took a mannequin, dressed it up, and painted it. And people started sending in pictures. This is just brilliant trolling uh, kind of performance, or uh, not really performance, but install, you know, guerrilla installation art. So the bronze statue was left outside Albuquerque City Hall on Wednesday morning by a group who identified itself only as the Ant Leon or Ant Lion Arts Collective. A plaque on the front, written on uh, in the font Comic Sans, proclaimed that the statue was generously provided to Bernalillo County by the Ant Leon Entertainment Art Collective. It continued Jeffrey Epstein. January 2019-53 to August 10, 2019, was an American financier who started as a teacher and worked his way up from a low-level assistant to being one of the top financial advisors in the USA. He had a home in New Mexico, Zorro Ranch. He was also a rapist who died in prison. Now, it's, it's funny they put it that way, uh, sort of endorsing the, the official story, but you don't even have to challenge the official story to use this to to troll the government, to troll Trump. And one of the uh, members anonymously said to uh, KRQE, local uh, TV, in a clearly sarcastic comments, quote, you know, so many statues are being taken down, but, you know, people are saying that they're bad people. So, you know, maybe we just need more statues of people like Epstein because that's historical, too. So maybe we need statues of people like Epstein. Maybe schools can even have statue parks with people like Hitler and Mao and Lenin, just so that we can really remember history. It's not the choice of Epstein, a former friend of the of the president until they fell out over real estate, was to make a point to Trump directly. Uh, the statue has since been removed by Albuquerque authorities. You would, th- you know, I I'm disappointed. I'm not surprised. But I would have hoped that the leadership of the Duke City would have at least had enough of a sense of humor to just sort of let it sit there until uh, someone angrily took it down and they could get video of that. Uh, that would have been fun. But no, of course, yeah, it's on City Hall property. We have to take this down. I hope they saved it. I, I hope they don't just, like, throw it out because this in and of itself is already a great historical artifact that needs to be preserved for history so that America never forgets the story of Jeffrey Epstein the evil of pedophilia, and everything that government has done to protect pedophiles. So, Trump now. This is from Axios.com. Big headline this week. Trump versus Biden. Senility becomes 2020 flashpoint. And, you know, when I saw this, I was like, wait a second, wait a second. Donald Trump and Joe Biden are arguing over who is more senile. I think they're both going to win. And, I mean, it's just, they're so, they're just delusional, both of them. And, and, you know, in a way, you have to be to get to their point. The article starts, senility is becoming an overt line of attack for the first time in a modern U.S. presidential campaign, why it matters. As Americans live longer and work later into life, and there's more awareness about the science of aging, we're also seeing politicians Test the boundaries of electability. Biden is 77. Trump, now 74, is the oldest person to assume the U.S. presidency. 
driving the news as President Trump ramps up insinuations that his general election rival is doddering. Joe Biden turned the tables on Tuesday, saying Trump doesn't seem to be cognitively aware of what's going on with his own briefings about Russia and U.S. service members. At the same news conference where he took a swipe at Trump, Biden was asked by a reporter if he has been tested for cognitive decline. Quote, I've been tested and I'm constantly tested, Biden responded, adding that I can hardly wait to compare my cognitive ability to the cognitive capability of the man I'm running against. Now, if he means in an in-person debate, he's going to lose. I think that's Trump's Trump card. That's his, that's his, I mean, this is Biden's to lose. And I, you know, I, I don't underestimate Trump here. He's clever, wily, desperate, capable of anything. So he's going to be able to create some debate moments, you know, and and really put Biden on his heels. How many Americans are going to be watching the debate? How many are going to care? But, you know, in a debate, just from watching, you know, both of these men talk, and I wonder now about Trump. How much has he actually declined from 2016? No matter who you are, the presidency is an incredible psychological burden that I don't think anybody who hasn't experienced it can even relate to. For the world to say, hey, here's this red button. If you push it, you can blow everything up. You go, me? You want, you want me to have that power? And everything else that goes along with being the president. You see, even uh, with Obama, you know, the before and after pictures, a lot more gray hair. And that's typically the case for presidents, that four or eight years ages them much faster than they would otherwise. So is Trump going to be able to deliver the debate performances that he did in 2016? I doubt it. From what I've seen, his senility markers, the just missteps, misspeaking moments, the just obvious mistakes, the the, the glass of water with two hands. Well, I wanted to be careful not to spill on it, It's really... Like he, he, so he, he, there's a video of him, you know, trying to take a sip from a glass of water, not being like, not being able to raise it, and having to use his other hand. And you go, that excuse that you were trying not to spill it on your tie, like so you can't not spill a drink on your tie with one hand. How how does that work, Mr. President? Walking down the ramp at Annapolis, looking very shaky. Oh, I was wearing slick shoes. It was an icy ramp. Still doesn't really explain it, Mr. President. I don't think the last four years have been kind to him. A Trump campaign Twitter feed played back the clip and asked, did Biden take a cognitive test? What were the results? Why is he getting frequently tested? Now, of course, when he says, I'm, I've am i been tested, you know, uh, you know, I'm constantly tested. No specifics? Not like you took took an actual psych test or anything like that. Just, oh, yeah, I get tested every day. I do an interview. It's a test. I pass. People don't think I'm crazy. Well, they do. Biden campaign advisors tell Axios 
Alexei McCammon and Hans Nichols that the testing Biden was talking about is the past 15 months on the campaign trail. Yep. And that they see Trump's attacks in psychological terms as projection. They also said Biden wasn't previewing a new theme, just highlighting Trump's attempt to distract from his own vulnerabilities. Flashback. Candidate's age and mental state have been questioned in past presidential campaigns. Remember Barry Goldwater in 1964, Reagan in 84, Dole in 96. But never like this. You know, this is uh, a significant factor in this race. The bottom line, according to the story, is though they have different personalities, both Trump and Biden are known for speaking off the cuff, opening themselves to verbal gaps and criticisms of rambling. But, you know, considering we live in the world of politics by the lesser evil, it's going to be really hard for this as a reason for, to turn into a reason for Americans to break out of the duopoly. You know, there are three serious presidential candidates right now, and the third, who you probably haven't heard of, is Dr. Joe Jorgensen, the Libertarian Party nominee for president. And if she is able to get onto the debate stage with Trump and Biden, the cognitive decline of these two I, – I, oh, man, I, I'm, I, I'm trying not to stoop to an ad hominem here. There's so many tempting ones to make fun of Orange Julius and creepy, sleepy Joe Biden – the kitty sniffer, you know, but just the decline, like these, these old white men at the end of their lives holding on desperately to power. Let's not screw this up, America. Vote Libertarian. Vote George Jorgensen. Vote for a president who isn't senile. How about that? So we have another fun Trump story here. But before we get to this, CJ, jump up on screen with me here. Let's check in on the audience, see if we've got any hot comments, and I'll uh, play another clip. If, uh, if, if, we, if we, I, do we, Do we have any guesses for our oh. clip of the day? Uh, you know, I can't really tell. This is why I need comment, Jim Freedom. <laughs> I'm realizing more and more how important it is for somebody to monitor the comments while I am keeping up with the stories here and, uh, you know, in the digital command center of freedom here, um, at, uh, part of the No Force One Studios. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm looking through here, and uh, I think it kind of got everybody blown away in the comments with the Epstein story. So, um, I, oh, I, I'm really? not, I'm, as I'm scrolling back through here and I'm looking for answers, you know, on all the platforms, just like Jim would be doing. And uh, I'm just noticing a lot of interesting people, I guess, in their random brain thoughts and trying to sort through what is uh, relevant information and what is just people being people on the Internet. So I want want you to get in if there are any good Epstein story comments there, because I I, I thought for my audience that would be kind of a boring story, like a little follow up on, okay, yeah, now. Elaine Maxwell is also arrested. Yeah, no big deal. I mean, I think I did a pretty good job connecting it to the bigger picture of pedophilia and, and the criminal nature yeah, of the no, moment. for sure. But did, did I miss anything? Any, no. any, other, any good insight? It's a complicated story. Right. Um, and, and absolutely, you dissected it uh, very well. Um, so this is a comment that I, I think would be a good one for you here. Uh, new to the channel that I've seen, 
since we started here into the comments. Uh, so uh, the same people saying, quote, Epstein didn't kill himself are the same liberals that virtue signaling to wear masks. They're so inconsistent in their governmental, quote, disbelief. <laughs> can we uh... – <laughs> Can we not talk about Corona for can we can we even <laughs> talk about Jeffrey Epstein without making the Corona connection? No, you can't. You freaking well, can't. I've already clicked all the <laughs> offensive categories on YouTube this morning, sir. Yeah, it's I mean, just preempting yeah, them. Like, hey, stand by. Like, oh, and by the way, the COVID nineteen. Uh, the uh, the the reason why I have to click that link if you say or do anything about it is is that they have to, I guess, link information from the government about COVID-19 underneath this video, the official information. Yes. So that's what that actual box is for. So I, I learned that here in the last, uh, in the last, uh, um, you know, go around here with uh, YouTube. And you know, so, funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I just realized this. If you are on YouTube and you want to talk about the news, Without violating YouTube's community guidelines, it's literally impossible right now. And, and, I, and I don't mean, like, impossible, but it's impossible to cover the news with any kind of integrity as a journalist of giving any kind of comprehensive, complete, or accurate picture about almost any story in the news today without mentioning the coronavirus. And that means that you are going to get flagged by YouTube. That's what a screwed up world we live like. And, and you go, man, it, it is a cloud, a cloud that government controls that has been cast over everything. Now, to that comment, I think it's, a, it's a, you know always great to point out the hypocrisy and contradiction in statism. And as, as libertarians, I, I think we always want to be you know logically consistent in our worldview, not driven by emotions to support the violence of government in any way once you realize that that's what it is. Yeah. And for liberals to say, well, we have to believe the government when it comes to masks, but we don't with, with Epstein. You know, I, the, yeah, it, 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 I don't know if masks is the flashpoint there, because I'll step, stepping back here, if, if you look at what the coronavirus actually is and what a proper response would be, I think masks yeah. becoming kind of a thing would still be a thing. Okay. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be, there would be no government mandates. There would be no fines, no shutdowns, no lockdowns, no citations, none of that nonsense. But the, the, the government might say, hey, if you're in a situation where it's helpful to limit how you're exposing your, your virus load, whatever it may be to other people, you might want to wear a mask in an abundance of caution to be polite, and if a business wants to, to require it, we're you know we're not going to we're going to respect the business setting their own standards for themselves. I think masks would still be kind of a thing, right? So that's but but I, to, to, I would improve on the observation there by saying liberals saying questioning Epstein, uh, but not questioning say the death the death count for Corona. Maybe that's that's what really needs to be questioned is the death count and the relevance of it. We should be starting to see statistics. I'm kind of disappointed that we haven't yet about, you know, has death overall across the world gone up, or is it people are dying from COVID and then not dying from other things? Ron Paul said a couple months ago, as you see coronavirus-attributed deaths increase, 
you're going to see a decrease in deaths attributed to pneumonia. And just in the way that the statistics are conventionally reported. And unless corona, and remember in the United States, the daily death rate is 7,500. 7,500 Americans die on any given average day right now. So when they say, oh, and then 100 died of corona, well, you know, and if you see this, this line that's relatively steady over time, 7,500 dying every single day, does corona lead to an increase in total deaths? Is there a, is there a curve? Is there a, 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 a surge there? We don't have that data yet, and it's really disappointing to see that. Now, I'll put this out as a challenge to the audience. If someone, you know, that data, I haven't seen that data. It's probably out there. If not, it could be uh, put together at this point. If someone in the audience wants to, to dig that up or find that for me, I'll for it. I'm all for it. Uh, I'd love to, to report on it. CJ, what else you got on screen here? <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, they won't federalize sex work to save kids. They're a joke. And and so uh, uh, I, I don't actually, I'm not good with the names either. So uh, what, what do you got here? Um, because they're making some great Don't points they. in the comments for sure, and and so I, I just wanted to give them that outro that that you know that they're, the government's a joke. But uh, here's another good one for you, Adam, and and the inner I guess uh, tinfoil hat wearer in me needs this one to be addressed. Um, Adam, they bash baby brains in and drink the blood, adrenochromine, uh, walnut sauce penal gland so uh go ahead and uh speak to that one for a moment if you don't mind sir yeah hmm first fire 508 yeah i i think you know there this sounds so if let's 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 talk about 911 for a second let's grab another third rail here while we're talking about pedophilia right let's see can we talk about We're going to eliminate Social Security, legalize sex work, and talk about Jeffrey Epstein and 9-11. Now, so with, like, 9-11, now, we know the government story about 9-11 is is total nonsense, easily disproven. Uh, The odds of of the general government story even being remotely accurate are infinitesimally small. So with 9-11, you know that, there was either a let it happen on purpose or made it happen on purpose conspiracy behind it to one degree or another. And I, I don't, I don't pretend to know exactly what happened. You know, evidence is being withheld. I would call for, I mean, it's a big part of my platform that runs for president, right? Say we're going to release all the documents, you know, where the, the surveillance footage that, you know, was hidden from the, uh, the, the strike on the Pentagon building, you know, there's so much that the government is still holding on to for this then we can't say for certain what actually happened. But if you are one of the people who profited from 9-11, who is still profiting in many ways from the official story being the official story, and you see people questioning the, the official story, what do you do to discredit them? You know, Richard Gage, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, you don't let him get the audience. You give it to Alex Jones. And I think Alex Jones is entirely genuine. Well, at this point, it's hard to say. Uh, but was, and, you know, in, in his message and trying to wake people up. But he's not the most credible advocate for 9-11 truth, right? So he got to start in terrestrial radio. That is to say, with the blessing of the establishment. So they wanted him to be the face of the 9-11 truth story. 
and that, you know to have the out there theories and to have a guy who doesn't sound credible sounds like a you know a raging lunatic uh, and, and so similarly with the, you know the, the pedophiles how do you discredit people like me who are looking at the Jeffrey Epstein Ghislaine Maxwell Donald Trump story and going yeah there's something serious here that is beyond the uh, you know the headlines what do you do to discredit me you you have people in the comments going they're eating babies and they're they're eating their brains and they're they're they got gold foil covered babies like Alex Jones they're, they're eating the babies and you go well I'm not going to listen to you anymore you're crazy and you, you know and it's one thing that to have that space you know and I'm glad there are shows out there where they do discuss you know all of those crazy out there theories but if you give those things any credibility, you reveal your own lack of intellectual integrity and sound logic and reasoning when you just go, well, something's here. It must be something really out there and crazy. So, no, I don't I, – I mean, I – no, I, I'm not going to entertain stuff like that that – you know, I'll entertain it if there's – you know, there's real evidence. Like, if you want to send me a link and go, hey, there's new evidence, this is a real thing, you know, look into it. But there's so many of these, like, just out there theories where you're, they're going, hey, look how evil things are, and we don't really have all that much evidence, uh, or, or it's all circumstantial, or it's numerology. Look, they put 666 in the bill, therefore they're, they're working for Satan, obviously. And you go, we can prove enough evil without, like, you go, hey, I want to show the government is evil. Why talk about these crazy hypotheticals that are extremely unlikely when you can look at stuff that's right in your face and painfully obvious and say, this is why government is evil and we need to do something about it. So I'm going to prioritize that perspective rather than the baby-eating comments. And, and CJ, do we have any guesses for our clip of the day or should we play another I have segments. Play another. Uh, I would. I would play another segment, sir. We're going deep down the rabbit hole here, and getting Adam your your purest thoughts towards these comments. And again, I'm I'm seeing what Jim sees today. There seems to be interesting again, just comments that are all over. Um, uh, you know, what do you say when it's you know just people that are just being people? I mean, let's see here if I've got any good one for you here. Um, well, let's hold that, CJ. I'm going to play another clip, and then we're going to go to our guest, Walter Block. Sounds good, sir. He is ready backstage and uh, ready when you are. For getting straight to the root that people at times think we're dealing in hate. We are oppressed. We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against the common enemy. All right, that's your next clip, your next clue. We go now to, oh, sorry, I should say, if you can guess the speaker, you win membership to the Adam versus the Man Producers Club, behind-the-scenes access. You get to see the show in development on Telegram and be backstage on StreamYard as we're doing the broadcast. So with that, let's bring up our guest today, Walter Block. 
Ladies and gentlemen, joining us today from Loyola University in New Orleans is my good friend, Professor Walter Block, a true libertarian intellectual heavyweight. And, uh, you know, Walter, you've come up several times in recent conversations here on Adam versus the Man. And, you know, I've, I've been honored to, to call you a friend for years and to, to, to have been influenced by you, to have absorbed uh, your methodology to a certain degree and your way of thinking about uh, political and social issues. And today we saw, you know, last week, we get to talk about what we saw in the news with you last week. This is very exciting. But, you know, how are you dealing with, with, uh, with, with all of this and with, uh, with the lockdowns? And who knows, what, what else are you facing at Loyola University right now? Well, before I answer your question, I have to object to one point in your uh, introduction. You called me a heavyweight. I'm trying to lose weight. Don't call me a heavyweight. <laughs> well, you've always, you know, uh, how old are you, Walter, if I may ask? I'm only going to ask because I know I can look it up. Uh, I'm 78. I'll be 79 in a month. 79? You're, you're older than Trump and Biden, and you're smarter and more in, you know, composed and more articulate than both of them put together. Yeah, you've always been uh, a little bit older than me, obviously, and uh, in, in, in great health, vibrant shape, and your mind has always been sharp. Do you have any, you have any tips or tricks for, for Trump and Biden? Well, I, I sort of, you know, when Trump was running in 2016, I started a group called Libertarians for Trump. And, um, you know, people were saying, well, what about Gary Johnson? What about the Libertarian Party? Uh, aren't you a Libertarian? Don't you favor the Libertarian Party? Yes, I certainly did. But I, I really wanted Trump more than Hillary. So my idea was in um, blue states or red states. And by the way, they really should reverse that. You know, red should be for commie Democrat. You know? We should reverse that. But uh, in certain states, say uh, California, Hillary was going to kick Donald's butt. And in uh, Louisiana, Donald was going to kick Hillary's butt. So um, what I said is vote for Gary Johnson in those states. But in the purple states where Donald really needs the votes and, and libertarians, I mean, Gary Johnson got 3% or 4%, something like that. Uh, then I said, well, you know, then vote for Donald. So I would say the same thing in, in 2020. Uh, uh, I, I favor Donald way more than Sleepy Joe Biden. Uh, Biden would be an utter disaster. Um, uh, Trump is only a partial disaster. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, Part I'm not a state of emergency. <laughs> well, I'm not a big fan of Trump, but, you know, it's a matter of who do you favor? Uh, uh, Trump or Biden, and I favor Trump uh, easily over Biden. Okay, Professor, Professor, I, I got to stop you there because you and I could debate this. This is like the one big disagreement we have where I, I'm like, no, I, we got to go for the long-run investment. There's no meaningful difference between Trump and Biden or Trump and Clinton, but I, I respectfully disagree with your strategy and uh, I'm, I'm happy to have that aired on the show. But today, I, I want to talk about this petition. This is nuts. So we read in the news last week that there was a petition at Loyola University, or your professor in the business department, to have you removed because you oppose 
slavery for the wrong reasons. And I, I just I read the story and it said that you you object to slavery because it goes against libertarianism and not because it's morally wrong. And you go, wait, but libertarianism is a moral philosophy. If it's against libertarianism, it's morally wrong. I don't know. I just the, the like I I, I am I, I hope and I I, I truly if, if if I thought it was appropriate I would be praying that you could turn this into a a teachable moment for the students at Loyola. But first, how did this come about? Well, I don't really know how it came about. Um, it was news to me. All of a sudden, I uh, realized that I was, uh, you know, uh, uh, some students wanted me fired, none of whom had ever taken any of my classes, but that's, that's a, a totally different issue. Um, all of a sudden, I can't see you. Um, I can only see myself. Can, can you put me back so I can see? Oh, there we go. Great. Um, the way I see it, if you have a Venn diagram, you know, and you have morality here and, and libertarianism here, uh, libertarianism is, is within morality. I mean, there's more to morality than just libertarianism. Libertarianism is a non-aggression principle. If you murder, rape, steal, uh, kidnap, uh, you go to jail or, you know, you get punished because you uh, initiated violence against non-aggressors. But morality consists of a lot more th that libertarianism doesn't touch. For example, it's immoral to be lazy. It's immoral to be a drunk. It's immoral to uh, not respect your parents. It's immoral uh, to gossip. Or, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of things that are immoral that libertarianism doesn't touch because libertarianism is only a theory of when is uh, violence justified. And it says only in defense against an initiation of violence, and that, that would be murder, rape, theft, uh, you know, kidnapping, things like that. So, uh, of course, I oppose slavery because of uh, it's immoral. But that's not the, the essence of it. The essence of it is that it, it violates the non-aggression principle, which is, you know, despicable. Whereas uh, immorality, okay, so I'm lazy, you're a bum, you know, what the heck? We can't go to jail for that or we shouldn't go to jail for that, even though sometimes we act immorally. We're, we're too lazy. We don't work as hard as we should or whatever. Those are relatively unimportant. The important thing is that, that we've got to stop murder, rape, theft, and kidnapping and stuff like that. So, um you know, yeah, I oppose slavery because it's immoral too, but I uh, quintessentially oppose it because it, it's vicious, it's depraved, it's, you know, uh, uh, just horrid uh, kind of relationship. However, and now it gets a little complicated because there is such a thing called voluntary slavery. And the example here is, uh, let's suppose that, um, God forbid, my son has a horrible disease and it'll cost $10 million for him to be cured. And you're a very rich man, uh, Adam. You've long wanted me to be your slave. <laughs> and, uh, and we make a deal. I, I, I would mind. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, you give me the $10 million, I give it to my son's doctors. They save his life. And now I come to your plantation and I pick cotton or give economics lessons. And uh, you can, uh, can whip me and, and kill me even or whatever the contract uh, implies, maybe not torture me, wh whatever the contract is. And we both gain, as we always do from all voluntary interactions, at least in the Exxon. Hold, hold, hold on. Just, just to clarify on this one point, are, are you sure that you want to use the word slavery to describe that kind of contractual obligation? Does the word itself slavery denote? coercion, because in this case it would not, right? 
I don't think the word slavery denotes coercion because we have this thing called voluntary slavery. Look, you can whip me. You can kill me. And if I object and if I call the cops and I say, hey, Adam is whipping me, uh, get him to stop, the, the cop, if he is following libertarian principles, is going to say, well, look, you signed a contract saying that Adam can whip you whenever you don't pick cotton well or give good economics lessons or whatever I'm doing. So I think it's slavery. Wouldn't there just be a better term to differentiate that and call it, you know, voluntary servitude or indentured servitude or, or, or something like that? Wouldn't that be a better way to differentiate it from the way that most people think of slavery? Because this sounds like it could get you in trouble with some clueless liberal students. Well, you're probably right. But, but indentured servitude is very different. If I'm your indentured servant, you can't whip me. Okay. You see, I'm not calling it slavery. I'm calling it voluntary slavery. Okay. Once I call it voluntary slavery, you know, I, I don't see why it's not slavery because you can't – the way you act with regard to me is the way you would act with regard to your coercive slaves. Right. But you have to, you have to admit that in the vernacular, the way that most people use the word slavery, they're, they're assuming that that definition is coercive. I agree. I agree with you. It is a um, uh, I, I, I think you're making a, a you know a, a very good point uh, that I'm acting a little bit. Um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, uh, I'm making up uh, definitions or something like that. But I I think to get to the essence of slavery, slavery just means that. Uh, in, in other words. It, Slavery just means that, that the, the master can do pretty much whatever he wants with the slave, and you can do pretty much whatever you want with me, only I volunteered to do it. Uh, look, uh, we have sadomasochism, uh, where, where the sadist uh, whips the, um, uh, the, the masochist. Oh, I have to tell you my joke, my SM joke. My <laughs> SM joke is that the, um, the masochist says to the sadist, whip me, and the sadist says, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's the same thing there. Uh, can there be such a thing as voluntary sadomasochism? Well, I think yes. Even though the ma the the the, um, the um, uh, sadist is whipping uh, the masochist and maybe even killing him, who knows how far it goes? Uh, so I I think I'm on good uh, linguistic terms to call it voluntary slavery. In any case. Fair we, we both gain from this because I value my son's life more than my freedom. You value bossing me around more than the 10 million. You're very rich. So we each gain from this. And what I say is this, you know, by the way, within the libertarian circles, this position of mine is in the minority. Murray Rothbard disagreed. Many other people disagreed. One or two people agreed with me. Uh, Robert Nozick agreed with me, uh, for example. So it's, it's a divisive issue even within libertarianism. So what happened was the New York Times was interviewing me in 2014. They were trying to do a hit piece on Rand Paul. Rand Paul was running for uh, the Republican nomination. And the thesis, uh, the gist of their article was Rand Paul is an idiot. Rand Paul is a moron. Man, Rand Paul is a maniac because look at who he hangs around with. And there were about a dozen people that he hung around with, one of whom was me. So they were interviewing me to try to find out, you know, what is libertarianism all about? And I was explaining, you know, the non-aggression principle and morality and this and that. And they weren't getting it, either because they were too stupid, which I don't think so. I think they were bright. And it was two two-hour interviews. So we went through, you know, just about everything. And they, they, they weren't getting it. So I used the A-bomb on them. 
namely voluntary slavery. And I said that uh, within libertarianism, it's a debatable issue, but in my view, this would be a valid contract because I agreed to it. And, you know, uh, if I if I own myself, which I do now because I'm not your slave, I haven't made any agreement, I have a right to sell it, in my view. And if I don't have a right to sell myself, then I don't really own myself. Look, I own this shirt. I have a right to sell it. And if I didn't have a right to sell this shirt, then to that extent, I'm not really the full owner of the shirt because part of ownership is the right to sell. So I own myself. I'm a free person. I have a right to sell myself. And I can't think of a better way to, to say it. It's not indentured servitude. I think it's voluntary slavery. So I gave him that. So now what these rascals did is they published something saying that Block believes in uh, actual slavery, the kind of slavery that existed in this country before 1865. And I, I, <laughs> I wrote to the Times. I said, hey, you know, come on, give me a break. I don't favor actual slavery. I've got a long paper trail of favoring reparations for slavery. And if you favor reparations for slavery, you can hardly be favoring slavery. So I, I wrote to them and I said, hey, you know, how about making a little correction? No, no, no. We're happy with the. the <laughs> so I sued them for libel, which is a problem because we libertarians believe that libel is a, a legitimate thing. Namely, I, I now say um, Adam takes a bath with a rubber ducky. Right. And, well, and, and libel should only have non-coercive responses. Right, right. And, you know, so I, I had to come up with a reason why I could sue them. And I came up with, well, they're, they're in the ruling class and therefore they're, they're guilty of something or other, which is a whole other thing. So anyway, uh, I sued them. And the lower court just threw it out. It was a black judge. And, and my experience in this is whenever you talk to black people about slavery, the, uh, their eyes close or, or they, they just tune out. You know, they hear voluntary slavery. They hear the last word and they're against it. They, they don't, you know, I give them this. I say, well, do you have any children? Would would you give up your freedom to save your child? And, you know, they, they don't like that. So anyway, I, I decided to settle the case. Uh, the lower court threw it out, but the upper court, the appellate court, supported me um, uh, on this. And finally, we settled. I settled with the New York Times on grounds, and I'm not supposed to say what the grounds were, but we were both satisfied. Otherwise, we wouldn't have agreed. So now getting back to these students, what these students read was the New York Times said that I favored actual slavery. And um they said, well, you know, this is beyond the pale. Yes, we, we, we can tolerate a little disagreement. We can have ideological diversity. But, you know, he's a racist and a sexist for uh, other reasons. Because I believe that um, <laughs> uh, men uh, pay, get paid more uh, than women, and, and this is justified. So that's the story. And they, they got about 600 signatures um, to, to the effect that I should be fired for racism and sexism. And then a former student of mine, uh, Anton Chamberlain, uh, came up with another um, petition on change.org, and it said, Block is a great guy. I'm, I'm just uh, paraphrasing here. Uh, he should uh, get a raise. And uh, now that has about 4,000 signatures as against uh, yes. against yeah. So yes. the seven tuple uh, ahead of them. Uh, so that's the story in a gist. Um, and then I, I wrote this thing, an open letter to my students who, not my students, an open letter to Loyola students and others who want me fired. And I, I try to be nice. I try to say, look, you know, let's talk about this. Um, and I gave them a, a John Stuart Mill business, you know, in On Liberty, that if you 
uh, don't understand the opposition to your view. You don't even understand your own view because your own view is defined in uh, contrast to the other view. So you need me uh, because I, I believe in, you know, freedom and, and liberty and laissez-faire capitalism and private property rights. And if you don't have someone like me, you're not going to even understand your own Marxist views as well as you otherwise could. Yep. And then, and then uh, what I said in this open letter is that uh, I uh, have this uh, practice. I take uh, students and I assign them term papers. And um, then if I get a good term paper, I ask the student, would you like me to co-author this with you? And I'll add to it. I'll edit what you wrote. And, and then we can try to get it published in a law review or an academic journal, which is sort of the um, uh, the crisis, the uh, a criteria on the basis of which professors are hired and then promoted. And it's, it's a real big feather in the cap of the undergraduate students to get into a referee journal or a, or a law review. And I've got about 110 successes in, in 20 years. And uh, then I, I said, I'm most proud of the fact that uh, there were about five or six of them where I don't co-author it. Why? Because the students attacked me. They, they just said I was all wrong, and what I did there is I uh, edited the thing, I added bibliography, I, I, you know, if they have a sentence with 300 words in it, I broke it down into, you know, a few sentences, and then I helped them get it published. And I try to say that I only, not only do I try to help the careers of students who agree with me, but also the ones who, you know, just uh, 180 degrees opposite me. And then um, I published this in the Maroon, the Loyola Maroon, and one of the commentators accuses me of um, plagiarism, namely I'm, I'm uh, sticking my name on other people's work. But, you know, I added almost ha sometimes half more little, uh, sometimes I'll add 40, 50, 60 percent of work to the paper. So, you know, they're just not open to rational discussion. It's um, problematic. <laughs> problematic as the SJWs would say. Yeah, no, I wanted to get back to your example of, uh, you know, the response of a black judge. Uh, not, not to focus on that case or even the dynamics of that circumstance or the point there, but the psychological dynamic of someone being confronted with an idea that makes them uncomfortable. You know, and it's not just you're talking to black people about slavery and if you start with anything other than hey i'm against slavery i'm pro reparations i'm pro black lives matter and by the way now here's my intellectual point if you start with here's my intellectual point about slavery all bets are off you can trigger someone and and to be fair to black americans as something that, that you know uh we can't relate to there is a threat there is a psychological impact of the history of slavery that that kind of makes their, their triggering uh, make sense and, and, and understandable. But the deeper dynamic here that is more pervasive, I think, in the destruction of intellectualism in America is that people are encouraged by the modern education system to indulge their emotional responses at the expense of intellectual analysis. Like with your students, they're not your students, but the students at Loyola, they have that same response. And I think this is maybe more of a trend among uh, liberals going along with liberal colleges, young, uh, you know, undergrad students, primarily safe spaces, triggering all of the SJW culture. But at, the, at a deeper level, 
that that is true for conservatives as well, really across the board with how institutional education has destroyed intellectual integrity. I don't want to say destroyed intellectual integrity because I don't know. I hope the, the still the overall trend is positive, but clearly there's a negative trend. Do you think that relates to what made your, the, the students at Loyola inclined to start this petition effort? Well, I think you're making a very good point, and it's not just college. It's also high school, and even in grade school, kids are taught, the, you know, that the – I don't know, transvestitism is great or some, you know, uh, I'm talking about six-year-olds, you know, the whole thing is, is rotten to the core. It's rotten in Denmark. I think uh, Shakespeare said, well, it's rotten in, in, in academia all, all throughout. I mean, Loyola is lucky. We have me, he said modestly, but not just me. We have almost a dozen professors, almost a dozen professors at Loyola. By the way, here's a little commercial break. If you're watching this and thinking of a, a college where where you can have at least a few professors that are free enterprise and libertarian, come to Loyola. Uh, not just me, but the whole economics department. And we have a guy teaching business ethics, a few people in the law school, and uh, it's pretty good. Whereas at next door to Lane, they got two libertarian professors out of, and they're triple our size. And down the street in Baton Rouge is LSU, and, and they're quadruple our size, and they've got none. How do I know they've got none? Because I once gave a lecture there, and there were 300 kids, and I said, are there any libertarian professors here? And if 300 kids didn't know of a single one, there ain't any. So come to Loyola. Okay, so uh, what you're saying is, um, well, you're saying two things. One is, what's the best way to approach them? And uh, should you uh, uh, approach them in in a confrontational way, which is my style? or in a non-controversial style. And I asked myself about, you know, what's the best way to convert people to libertarianism? And my answer is, there ain't no one right way. It's just uh, subjective. And my reasoning for this is I say, well, who are the two most successful people in converting people to libertarianism? And the two that were the most successful... Paul and Ayn Rand. You got it. You got it. Uh, a for <laughs> you get an A on that one. Ayn Rand for my generation, and Ron Paul for your generation. And yet they were the opposite. I mean, Ron Paul's a sweetie pie. He, he's you know he sort of exudes niceness. Whereas if you tell Ayn Rand that she exudes niceness, she's going to slap you in the face. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so from this, I deduce there's no one right way to do it, and and we should all be ourselves and, you know, uh, not try to change our personality. And my way is, you know, more confrontational. Like, uh, you know, my books, Defending the Undefendable, were purposefully, uh, you know, in your face. And, you know, calling it voluntary mm-hmm. slavery is, is part and parcel of that. Whereas other people, uh, Israel Kirzner, you know, you know, is very um, uh, low-key, whereas Murray Rothbard was not low-key. I'm sort of a Rothbardian on, on this one, personality-wise. So uh, that's one issue. The other, All right. namely, how do, how do you convert people? Then the other question that you raise is, well, why are we having so much trouble? <laughs> why isn't Ron Paul already president? Or why aren't you president? You you were running for president. Um, uh, okay, you didn't make it through the LP thing, but what the heck? Um, if you did, you wouldn't be president. And uh, what's her name? Uh, Joe Jorgensen, who's running. She's not going to be president. Why not? Why Why is the audience for this um, thing, uh, this interview, I don't know, in the hundreds or in the thousands, whereas it should be in, not in the millions, but in the hundreds of millions? Why? Well, I wrote an article on that. I read a lot of articles. 
And one of the um, reasoning, one of the articles uh, says that the reason for the, the lack of success is sociobiological. Namely, we are hardwired not to be in favor of free enterprise, not to be in favor of um, uh, decentralization and stuff like that. Because a million years ago, when we were in the trees or in the caves or wherever we were, there was no impetus to uh, uh, favor voluntary trade, uh, no markets. Uh, And I think that uh, a lot of our um, uh, uh, hardwiring is based uh, on opposition to this. I, I get freshman students every year, and they hear about price gouging, and they're appalled. How can anyone price gouge? Making a profit is evil. And um, uh, minimum wage is great because, you know, we want to help the poor. Well, where did they get that from? Part of it is from the schooling. But why is the schooling teaching them that? And I think part of that is biological. We are like pushing the rock of Sisyphus up the rock. You know, we push it up the mountain and it keeps coming back down. Uh, We're not making that much progress. I've been in this since 1963, uh, maybe 1964 when I first became a libertarian. And uh, we've made some progress in some ways. Uh, uh, We must have 100 times more uh, libertarians than we had then. I once asked Murray Rothbard, uh, how many libertarians were there? uh, And this is 1964 or 5, and he said 25. 25 in the whole world? Well, we must be 25 million now. So we've increased by roughly 25 million. On the other hand, at that time, there were how many people in the world? 3 billion, 4 billion. Now there's 7 billion. So we've increased by 25 million, proportionally gigantic, whereas the uh, the uh, uh, total population increased by 4 billion. So uh, we're, we're doing well proportionally, but not absolutely. But the point is, I think for you and I, I think I speak for you uh, and me, we don't really care whether we're succeeding or not. We'd like to succeed. That, don't get us wrong. We'd like, But it's so much fun. Uh, to promote liberty, and and it's so important to promote liberty that we're going to do it whether we succeed or not. If we succeed, great. If we don't succeed, we give it the old college try. So that would well, be my, my second answer yeah. to the question. I would I would I wouldn't disagree, but I would have to add one important thing for myself uh, because I, I I enjoy the intellectualism. Obviously, I I love talking to you. I, I enjoy reading about economics. I enjoy reading about philosophy, but what really motivates me is a deep-seated sense of injustice. That's what makes me an activist, not just an academic. And I know you feel this too. And, and I think it's really important that we stay in touch with this motivation. And I, this is another big difference between you and I. I am a lot more optimistic for the long run, but I, I, I agree that we would do this anyway because we know it's the right thing to do when there is injustice in the world make no mistake as a advocate of a moral philosophy we are standing up to immoral behavior that in the world today as we know it run by governments is responsible for the greatest injustices in the world and that is what we're doing and if i felt that you know i wasn't having or that i was completely impotent in having a positive impact even just on individual cases you know, keeping people out of jail for victimless crimes, helping people navigate their relationships with government better, you know, showing people what we're doing here, homesteading, you know, living more free. I, I lose a lot of motivation. At least a lot of the incentive for me would be gone. So, Walter, with, 
we, we differ on that. I tell you, if I were on a desert island and, and I knew that anything I wrote would never be seen by anyone, I would write it anyway because it's in me and i got to get it out of me. Oh, I'd still be doing it too. It just wouldn't have the complete motivation. I mean, I love seeing the relief from people who get out of jail because we fixed something in me their case. Too. Me too. You know, but, I mean, but I think it's more basic with me that uh, it's just sort of in me bubbling and dying to get out, and I got to get it out. Yeah. This is an important distinction in our personalities. You definitely have a lot more of that intellectual motivation than I do. But, you know, uh, Professor, uh, I, I want to ask, you know, I, I mean, this is really appropriate because uh, in terms of satisfaction, I want to I want to see Walter Blot get a pay raise. I, I want to see you know, where. So the, the, the final question that I want to ask about this story with the petition to get you fired. And I'll, I'll quote Shakespeare back at you, Professor. If this is a petition that is going to go somewhere, I mean, we have some possibilities, right? Either you're going to. So do you think you're going to get fired or do you think you're going to get a pay raise or do you think that this whole petition is nothing more than a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more? It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Well, you're giving me three choices. I reject all three. <laughs> First of all, I'm not getting a raise. Uh, Loyola, like most universities, has got a little financial difficulty because of the coronavirus and, uh, you know, no raise. On the other hand, I'm not going to get fired because I have tenure. And the provost and the president of the university came out not on my side. They said they disagreed with me on, on the substance of it. But uh, they said that, look, we need uh, ideological diversity, which is amazing because, you know, usually diversity in the college uh, context means um, gender or skin color or religion or something like that, but never ideology. And, and there are some states, I think uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, one of those, Nebraska, the, the state legislature is now having a law saying that new hires for faculty have to have ideological diversity. You can't have a sociology department where uh, uh, 35 out of 35 are all a bunch of pinkos. You have to have at least one or two uh, that, that aren't, and similarly for other departments. So uh, that's good. So uh, the prepa- the president and the provost of Loyola University, bless them, said that we need ideological diversity, and I exemplify that. And they also said uh, we need academic freedom, which is, you know, magnificent. So I take my hats off to them. Uh, um, and also I have tenure. Yes, they could fire me, but if they fired me, uh, I'd go to court, and I think I would prevail and, and get all sorts of um, uh, benefits. You know, uh, So I don't think I'm going to be fired, and I'm certainly not going to get a raise. But does that mean that, that it's um, uh, signifying nothing? No. It, it, I reject the third leg of the, the three-legged stool. And uh, what this did is um, made me even more uh, – what's the word um, – um, Infamous, not famous, infamous. And uh, because of this, look, it was the same thing with the New York Times. Because of them, I am able to raise my profile in a a, a great way. So I'm thankful to the New York Times. And I'm thankful to these kids, one, because it might be a learning experience for them, and two, because I am now uh, on your show because of this. 
I might have been on your show anyway, but uh, this tipped uh, you know tipped me over into being on your show. But not just always you. looking for an excuse. I, uh, okay, uh, but, but I've been on many, many other shows, and many other people have written about this. Uh, it, it's been in, in the uh, local paper. The um, uh, Advocate Times-Picayune covered me on this. Um, uh, there might be other newspapers that will cover this, um, and, and a lot of people have written about this. So my profile has been raised, so I'm not going to get a raise. I'm not going to get fired, nor does it mean that it, it signifies nothing, a la Shakespeare, but it's helped promote liberty. Or at least it's helped promote my contribution to liberty, which, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of. So I welcome this. And if anyone wants to start another petition on anything else, you know, go get them. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Professor Block. Any last thoughts, ways you want people to be able to connect with you today? Well, my last thought is if you're thinking of going to a college, come to Loyola University. All okay. right. Thanks for having me on your show. It's always a pleasure, Alan. Likewise. Thank you so much, Professor. All right, that was a lot of fun, man. Uh, raising my own intellectual standards every time we talk to Professor Block. CJ, let's uh, let's check in with the comments. I, I know we've got some good ones from that interview, and then we're gonna we're gonna go through uh, uh, a few more headlines here for the rest of the show today, and see, and then play the rest of the. I'm excited about this clip to reveal. This is a, a big reveal here. If nobody gets it, especially. CJ, I, I just I just wanted to note during that that in live time signatures were being added to the uh, give Walter Block a pay raise and so I had to get that on the screen <laughs> as I saw the numbers refreshing and going up and so uh, again just a great overall interview um, I don't know how you feel about exorcism sir but maybe we'll get into that on the on the uh, after show over on Patreon.com forward slash Adam versus the man. We have some uh, patrons in the comments who want to talk about exorcism. I actually haven't actually, because, again, we don't have comment Jim Freedom, who normally monitors the Patreon chat, I haven't been able to distinguish the two while while doing this uh, still on my end. But uh, don't worry, Patreons, you can come backstage and hit me up. You know how to get the links already. So if you really needed to say something, you know how to get on the show. And then uh, there is a good comment here that, uh, again, uh, I'm so bad with names. How did you say it earlier again, sir? Uh, Dobre? No, no. Here's another one. Uh, again, I'm uh, so Don, sorry. Dondre. DeAndre? No, Dondre. 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 Okay, I'm terrible with names, sir. But anyways, I understand what he's saying as a person of color. I hear you, pal. Shame he was uh, obs. Uh, ostracized never heard this argument but then again i'm new to so many libertarian concepts so just some great oh and then he's got a great comment about voluntary slavery essentially voluntary slavery is a matter of consent and slavery has no consent while indentured servitude is an agreement between employer and employee for profit mm, i'm listening learning yeah so even if you like so i i really uh, appreciate what Professor Block is doing there with the use of the term slavery and voluntary slavery. Uh, I I wish there was a I, I wouldn't use that term. First, I think is it, I you know I'm not trying to be the intellectual uh, the, the rhetorical provo rhetorical uh, provocateurism is not part of my repertoire. 
in the way that it is in Walter Blocks, and it serves him well in academia to be able to put out those hooks for people and get them thinking at those deeper levels. I don't I, – I would prefer to, you know, keep the term – I mean, if slavery is human owner, ownership of another human being, you know, then, yeah, you can enter into that voluntarily. You can voluntarily give up. I mean, I see his point intellectually that that's the best language to describe what he's talking about. But I'm willing to use the best rhetoric to communicate the deeper ideas instead. And I think using that term voluntary slavery as opposed to, you know, just finding a different word to describe it. And I don't have a problem with it. I think that might be more effective. It's still going up in in live time, sir. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I hope so, everybody who's watching is sharing this. See, can you put the link to this in, in the in the comments? I yes, sir. It? I will certainly do that. And then uh, after that, sir, there's uh, nothing really for comments. Looks like we're going to have a new Patreon member today. So uh, that's uh, pretty awesome. The people are already asking where that's at, too. So uh, back to uh, you, sir. Sure. Well, we did have, uh, you know, a couple uh, emails. One, Mark, Victor, so a couple other things. By the way, I, I really, you know, I, uh, Dodger, I hope that's how you say your name. Um, please ask questions. I mean, I, I love being able to do with this show uh, when we have this awesome, active, engaged audience. Uh, just libertarianism 101 stuff every now and then. And I, I often assume, and I think a lot of libertarians, you know, we make, we, we make uh, the same uh, false assumption that everybody we're talking to kind of knows what we're talking about or uh, has the same background information, and that's usually not the case. So let's see. Uh, Pay raised just taught me something. All right. Uh, so if, uh, if if you have basic questions, please you know include them. Now our friend Mark Victor, attorney in Arizona, uh, who was uh, defending a pizza store or a pizza restaurant, the Euro Pizza Cafe, just got this email. Uh, as the show was going on today, he said uh, that uh, the owner was cited for the crime of failing to follow Governor Ducey's order, uh, and that was because they allowed patrons to take their pizza and eat outside on the patio in a strip mall that they didn't, you know, they didn't kick their customers off the sidewalk. Uh, that was that was basically the charge. So good news there from Mark Victor that the case got dismissed. You know, normally I, I get more, um, you know, uh, emails and, and comment questions that are sort of, you know, libertarian 101 or, you know, Adam, explain your, uh, your, your worldview, your, your background on something. And, you know, there hasn't been a lot of that since we, uh, since, since we rebooted Adam versus the man a couple months ago. And I, I'm really excited about where we are with this show right now. We are, uh, very close to, I think, our, our final format development, which is going to be taking this live show to Patreon only, putting it behind a very low paywall, a paywall that you could stub your toe on. Uh, for a dollar a month, you'll be able to watch the show live, uh, unlimited. And of course, the, the whole show is still available for free as an audio podcast. Uh, right now, you can be a patron for five, ten dollars, or fifty dollars a month to be good, better, or best. $10 gets you producer club status, of course. And uh, I think when we do this, we're going to be kind of in our in our final format. I'm, I'm really, really happy with where this is going. I'm really happy with what CJ has put together. 
We don't have comment Jim Freedom with us today, but it, it, it is showing us, and I think we're all appreciating how uh, the trio, this team of Jim and CJ and myself, really are a great compliment. I feel like I have the most support uh, I've, I've ever had doing this show for production with CJ, you know, just nailing it every day on the format with the graphics and the broadcast and the clips. And having his mind during the show engaged in that and having Jim separately paying attention to the comments, I think it's a, it's a really great combination. So once we get to this final format, uh, we're going to be really focused on growing the audience, growing the show, and, and, and getting your help for that, getting people signed up for just a dollar a month and tuning into this live show. I genuinely believe that what we are doing here is changing the world for the better. And the more people who listen to this message, the better off the world will be. And I would do this for no money if, if it meant, uh, you know, I mean, I, all, my needs are taken care of here. Uh, but what we do with the money that we make with the show, you know, our first goal with Patreon now is to get the monthly income up enough. And it's still less than $200 right now, guys. It's like, it, it, no, it doesn't come close to covering uh, our overhead for Liberated Syndication, which is our podcast distribution, for web hosting, for email, for, you know, just for what else are we paying? For StreamYard, of course. And uh, we, we need to get better internet out here at the Garden of Freedom. That's going to be the next thing to step up our game with uh, satellite internet. It's not cheap. It's, you know, a little more expensive than, than common residential internet, but that's what it takes off-grid. Right now, I'm doing all of this through uh, Verizon, uh, the whole show, through my phone and my hotspot. And that's it. It's great. It works. I love it. Uh, but we want to step it up. Eventually, even build a studio out here. And how cool would it be if we had a real proper space? It's not just black curtain on the bus and me in my rocking chair. But if we had a real studio and a desk and, and a place where we get a proper lighting and, and camera set up and all of that, uh, that would be the next step. And we can build it here. Um, that's one of the things that, that we are working on. Man, by the way, that uh, if you didn't catch it earlier on Instagram, at the Garden of Freedom, you can see the rocket stove oven that we built uh, this last weekend. Cool technique with uh, slip form stone masonry. I've never done it before. And now I'm like, oh, my gosh, I could build so much more here. And uh, you can see that first, second, and third picture right across the top there are uh, the ones with the uh, rocket stove oven. You can see the middle and the right one there with the form still on it. Now, little homesteading request if someone wants to help me figure this out. I would So we did this with uh, Portland Cement. And uh, as my friend Quinn Aker, who inspired me to build this in the first place, he calls it military industrial complex mortar. And to be fair, yeah, it would be much better and, and conscientiously sound if we could make our own mortar here on the property. And I think we can do that. We've now in this area, never on our property itself, but like on the neighbor's property, like right next door and just in, in this area, people find clay shards. I found a couple of clay pottery shards from when the Native Americans lived here over 800 years ago. There's so much cool history in this area. It's just, it, it's mind blowing. So if you can make pottery, from local source materials, I'm pretty sure that you can make a mortar material as well, and then we can build whatever we want out here out of stone and native mortar and just keep building and building and building for free on the materials. So if someone wants to help me figure that out, 
I think you do you clay, sand, and ash, and water, something like that. But I don't know. We might experiment. I don't really want to experiment with it when people have done this before. If someone can help me find, you know, a decisive guide to that, I would really appreciate it. Again, the, uh, so email. Email me, adam at thefreedomline.com, especially if you want to come out here and join us. And uh, we would love to have uh, any visitors who want to contribute to what's going on here at Gardenia come and hang out. So uh, let me know, adam at thefreedomline.com. And if you can help me figure out a, a uh, naturally sourced mortar formula, I would love that as well. Okay, to thehour.com. Donald Trump is the king of cancel culture. I love pointing out these just ridiculous, glaring contradictions uh, among those who still believe that the left-right spectrum is a good way of breaking down politics as opposed to recognizing that we have one party in America. It has a Republican wing. Uh, There's the Republican wing of the American Socialist Party and the Democrat wing of the American Socialist Party. And they just have different flavors of, of, of bullshit. That's it. Donald Trump is the king of cancel culture. It's funny to hear conservatives rail against this because cancel culture has risen up as a somewhat liberal-triggered SJW phenomena as they are better organized with it than conservatives are. Right? They actually get things done. Petitions, boycotts, and actually getting... People taken off the air by letter campaigns, angry letter campaigns. They actually do that. But really, what is going on here? It's someone with an emotional response saying, I don't want to hear that, and therefore I don't want anybody else to hear that. So the uh, quote, the story here starts with a quote from White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany from Monday. President Trump stands against cancel culture which seeks to erase our history, which, of course, is why the Jeffrey Epstein statue in Albuquerque is such brilliant trolling of Donald Trump. Oh, you want to remember our history? Well, we better preserve the statue of Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, whoops, the city of Albuquerque took it down. Uh, well, now we need, we need statues of, of Pol Pot and Mao and Hitler and Stalin so that we can really remember our history through statues. So talk of cancel culture defined as the popular practice of withdrawing support for canceling public figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive is everywhere these days. Uh, Social justice warriors are waging a dangerous cancel culture revolution, screams the headline in the New York Post. Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, who's next on the statute cancellation tour, demands Fox's Greg Gutfeld. Democrats are driven by this radical cancer cultural left, insists Representative Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio. So perhaps it isn't surprising that the left-bashing president has jumped on this particular culture wars bandwagon. But here's the hypocrisy. Donald Trump has embraced cancel culture his entire life. I cannot think of another politician or public figure who has spent more time trying to to cancel critics than the thin-skinned former reality TV star in the Oval Office. Over the years, Trump has called for the boycott of leading U.S. brands such as Macy's, Apple, and Harley-Davidson, among others, because they displeased him in one way or another. He forces those around him into non-disclosure agreements and then threatens them with legal action if they dare speak out against him, including his own niece, Mary, 
whose forthcoming tell-all book the president is desperately trying to cancel. And we have an update on that story today. We'll get to it in a minute. This approach has only been amplified since he came into office, a period that has found him publicly and repeatedly trying to cancel both social media companies, quote, we will strongly regulate or close them down, and network news channels challenge their license, while calling for prominent journalists who have upset him, such as Chuck Todd and Jamelly Hill, to be fired. In private, Trump has gone much further, according to his former national security advisor, the president wants some journalists to be executed. Then there is Colin Kaepernick. The president not only supported the benching of the former San Francisco 49ers quarterback, but insisted NFL owners sack other players too. Quote, wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when someone disrespect this disrespect or flag to say, get that son of a B off the field right now. Out, he's fired, he's fired. He ranted at a rally in September 2017. Trump's interest in silencing his opponents the very thing cancel culture's conservative critics to cry is more pronounced when he's targeting members of his own political party. Take Mitt Romney, the sole Republican senator, vote for impeachment in February, faced an intense backlash from both the president and his ideological allies. Skipping ahead here, there are then there are the public servants who dared testify against Trump during the House impeachment hearings. Ambassador Gordon Sondland and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman were both canceled by the president for having the temerity to speak out. Trump even canceled Vindman's brother for the crime of being his identical twin. So I wonder then, is this having a backlash effect? At, at some point, they have to... All of these criticisms, they have to have some kind of and effect. Hey, Trump is saying, don't listen to all these people who are telling uh, telling you that I'm a turd. You know, oh, there are lots of people telling me that you're a turd? I, I didn't know that. Thank you for calling that to my attention, President Trump. You see how that works? And so this is really exciting to see that this might be coming to the book, the book about Trump's family. But first, so right now in 2020 here in the United States, we have an anti-free speech authoritarian egomaniac sitting in the White House backed by a cultish political movement steeped in grievance politics, constantly cracking down on critics, dissenting voices, and unpopular opinions. Donald Trump and the Republican Party have never stood against cancel culture. To the contrary, they embodiment. So, from CNBC.com, fun follow-up on the story we would have covered yesterday about this. Now, the news is a little bit different. Instead of the book being held, according to CNBC.com, New York Appeals Court clears the way for a publisher to distribute tell-all book by President Trump's niece. A New York Appeals Court cleared the way Wednesday for a publisher to distribute a tell-all book by President Donald Trump's niece over the objections of the president's brother. Now, of course, why is the president's brother doing this? Well, maybe less people will criticize Trump if, if he can say that he's not doing it himself. He's got a proxy. Like, duh, this guy, his brother totally acting on his behalf. 
Although the book was scheduled to be published on July 28th, Simon & Schuster sent thousands of copies of the 75,000-copy first run of the book. It had already been sent to bookstores and others. The appeals ruling, though, left in place restraints against Mary Trump, the book's author, and the president's niece, after the president's brother said in court papers that she was part of an agreement among family members not to write about their relationships without permission. Hmm. The title of the book is Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man by Mary L. Trump, Ph.D. And, of course, got to put Ph.D. on the uh, the cover there for credibility. Definitely supporting that move. New York Appeals Court cleared the way Wednesday for the book. And this is, you know, I, I I wonder, like, does Trump just want more people? To, I mean, Trump seems to be able to uniquely capitalize on negative attention. So maybe this is deliberate. Maybe he wants everybody to read this book so that he can use it as a talking point later and discredit it. I don't know. I have to respect Trump for so enthusiastically taking on so much hatred directed straight to him. As for his version of cancel culture, we know he's a bully, and this is his way of doing it and not calling it cancel culture. But it's the same kind of problematic nonsense that we get from SJWs and liberals who, just like conservatives, have no solid intellectual ground to stand on when defending the coercion of the state as objected to by libertarianism. And so when you don't have an argument, you can distract, you can make side points and intellectual fallacies and hope that the Streisand effect is something that you can capitalize on the negativity from But at some point, I don't think this is going to hold up for Donald Trump. And I am actually very much looking forward to reading too much and never enough. Now, we have a couple more stories, uh, environmental stuff. I really want to take the time to get into this properly. Oh, well, no, we don't have enough time in today's show. From Politico.com, judge explains decision to reject delay in Roger Stone's sentence. The judge says the former Trump advisor's health issues are under control and the facility he'll report to has no cases of coronavirus. Wait a second, wait a second. I thought the corona, the rona was everywhere in jails. You have a you you tested everyone in that jail. Every guard, every inmate every other staff member, everybody going in and out on a daily basis. And you're going to subject Roger Stone to that. So now, now it's okay. According to the story, Roger Stone's underlying health issues are medically controlled and the prison he's being sent to has no documented cases of coronavirus. And therefore he doesn't merit an additional 60 day delay of his prison term. The judge in his case is determined in a newly unsealed opinion. Judge Amy Berman Jackson, who last week ordered the former Trump advisor immediately into home confinement and to prison on July 14, said she was turning down Stone's request for a delay until September 
because prosecutors have made similar arguments against releasing defendants whose health conditions were, quote, in check. So, again, good luck to Stone for this, who has in recent weeks posted outrage about his position on Instagram and has pleaded with President Donald Trump for a pardon. While he wasn't wearing a mask in many of his posts, he did don one amid Jackson's consideration of his motion to delay his sentence. Yeah, why piss off the judge for that? Sad to hear that Roger Stone wore a mask and going before the judge, but uh, I can certainly understand his legal strategy there. All right, we've got just a few minutes left. Let's uh, let's bring up CJ, see if we have any more comments from our audience or any uh, guesses for our clip of the day. CJ, what do we got? So, again, uh, can't go back to, uh, hey, Jim, I thought you said you're coming on 25 minutes down the road, dog. Come on. Uh-oh. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm doing my best here. And, again, uh, you know, just like I said, people being people, uh, people saying they're going to get the book, which is awesome, um, that uh, they, they were just, uh, lots of cheers for uh, our good friend Walter there. And, Read and- freedom first. Don't well, don't and, read too much and never enough. Until you read, don't read any other book until you've read free. At least listen to the audio book. It's free. Free. Thefreedomline.com. See? Download it for free. It's printed we, uh, on the book. Therefore, it must we, be we, true. We, 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 uh, we got that uh, on the screen definitely before. but uh, I, And I'm thinking the address is right there at the bottom. Right there. In case you missed it. I mean, it, it, it's freedom at thefreedomline.com to watch... Adam versus the man. So, and hey, real quick, uh, I want to do this because we're getting so close to to this actually hitting five thousand. Just out wow! Of, All right, this I is mean, so cool. We are less than eighteen uh, signatures away to see where the next evolution of this story goes. So, no, 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 not eighteen. Nine hundred and eighteen. Uh, sorry, I guess I can't see that on my own screen. Nine hundred and eighteen. Wow! Yeah. I thought I, I thought we were getting there. My bad. I guess eight. Hey, well, the fact checkers are going to love this, but this is why I'm producer, not uh, Adam, the host. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's uh, it. As far as let me just check these comments here because again, I I'm trying to do double duty here. Um, just uh, all right. So um, okay, uh, here here we go. Uh, Okay, well, well, uh, just to go to your Roger Stone story here real quick, uh, I once saw Roger Stone doing a mainstream media news interview, and he, too, was sporting heavy orange makeup and gem, whatever that is. Uh, Gematria 33? What, what, I don't even... I gotta look that up. Yeah, no. Um, and, uh, okay, here's... Uh, a follow-up to our previous to it, Gematria 33, Orange, Zionel, J, Crypto, Juice, Trump, Man, Bad, especially when he does 666 and inverted Illuminati pyramid hand signals. Hmm. Yeah. It's just, well. And there's, there's, uh, there's cats in the comments, sir. You know, about, like, that, that, uh, Stone was wearing makeup for a mainstream media. By the way, keep that comment up for a second. Okay. Um, when, when you go and do an interview for mainstream television and you go to a fully lit studio, 
they, they put makeup on you. Like, a, I mean, unless you're doing remote, like, by Skype and responsible for your own whatever, you know, you, you go into one of those TV studios, and I, you know, I've done this a few dozen times. They sit you down in makeup like the host, and it's because under those lights, like, here – I don't what have to wear makeup. What, what, what is the Illuminati hand signal? I feel like this is going into some weird stuff, like six 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 inverted Illuminati pyramid hand signals. Like, no, that means I love you, right? That's that's I love you, peace and or love. Horns? I don't so know. About I love you horns? Sign language, are we right? doing? Are we, I mean, are we offend? I mean, I'm clicking the the spiritual demon possession category censorship. So the ad revenue YouTubers. They uh they they can know what category we can put this in today. <laughs> All right. All right. Do we have any guesses for our clip of the day? I, I'm looking here and in, in the in there and nobody seems to have a guess for it. So I guess All it right, so carries on to the Patreon. No. So well, this is it. This is it. We're gonna we're gonna wrap up the show with this. I'm gonna play the whole thing, and then I'm gonna do good news this day in history. And if nobody guesses. Then, uh, then I'll go ahead and, and, and reveal it, and nobody uh, wins. Nobody wins. Dang. So here it is. This is uh, just over two minutes. In order for you and me to devise some kind of method or strategy to offset some of the events or re- a repetition of the events that have taken place here in Los Angeles recently. We have to go to the root. We have to go to the cause. Dealing with the condition itself is not enough. And it is because of our effort toward getting straight to the root that people oftentimes think we are dealing in hate. We are oppressed. We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against the common enemy. Who taught you to hate the texture of your head? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin to such extent that you bleach to get like the white man? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate, you should ask yourself, who taught you to hate being what God made you? And I, for one, as a Muslim, believe that the white man is intelligent enough. If he were made to realize how black people really feel and how fed up we are without that compromising sweet talk, stop sweet talking. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how what kind of hell you've been catching, and let him know that if he's not rich, to clean his house up. If he's not rich. To clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house to catch on fire and burn down. All right. CJ, do we have any guesses yet? We do, actually. So I'm going to uh, go with the first one here. 
Yep, that's it. T-Storm is correct. This is Malcolm X. We got it on time today. That is awesome. Just at the last second. Thank you, and congratulations to T-Storm. If you would please send an email to jim at thefreedomline.com to claim your prize, he will get you plugged into the Producers Club. Now, one of the reasons that I thought this was such a – I mean, this isn't just a, a critical – historical moment and a beautiful speech breaking down, uh, you know, there, a, a big part of racism in America and, and a, a big part of what was behind the mental enslavement behind the institution of slavery was a creation of self-hatred or disdain in the black population. And the way that Malcolm X breaks that down there is just so beautiful and powerful. Uh, I, I really, mm, it's, it's just, you got to hear it. It's a, it's a great case. And what precipitated this was that uh, on April 27, 1962, as uh, the there were two Muslim brothers uh, out unloading suits from a car in front of a mosque, and they were questioned by Los Angeles police, who then initiated a scuffle, uh, which led to gunfire. Seven members of the Nation of Islam were wounded, and one man, Ronald Stokes, is killed by the police. And you think about George Floyd, Eric Garner, Breonna Taylor, so many names of the modern age of police brutality that jump out at you, and at protests they say, you know, say his name, say her name. These are human beings. Acknowledge it. Well, similarly, at the time, Ronald Stokes was that guy for the black power movement of the 60s. And this is why Malcolm X, why you know his name today and why he was such a critical leader in this movement. CJ, thank you for playing the video. Uh, this particular edition comes from the Smithsonian Institute. And as that nice uh, little musical overlay and some great graphics to go along with it that really do portray the issues of racism at the time that Malcolm X was addressing. So with that, finally to wrap things up, this day in history, good news from July 2nd. It was 40 years ago today, <clears throat> the comedy film Airplane premiered. Written and directed by David and Jerry Zucker, along with Jim Abrams, it won Golden Globe nominations and starred Leslie Nielsen, Robert Stack, Lloyd Bridges, and Peter Graves. A perfect parody of the disaster film genre, particularly the drama Airport 1975. Airplane is a fast-paced slapstick comedy with visual and verbal puns, gags, and obscure humor. Maybe we'll play the clip from this in our patron-only after show where we don't have to worry about copyright or any other kind of censorship. But, yes, fun movie. If you haven't seen it, recommend it. Um, on this day in 1777, Vermont became the first American state to abolish slavery. On this day in 1976, North and South Vietnam united after being divided since 1954. On this day in 1982, the year I was born, 45 helium balloons and a lawn chair lifted Larry Walters to 
thousand feet. On this day, 1988, Michael Jackson became the first artist to have five number one singles from one album. When Dirty Diana, I Just Can't Stop Loving You, The Way You Make Me Feel, and Man in the Mirror went to the top of the U.S. charts from the LP Bad. In 2000, the year 2000, on this day, Vicente Fox was elected president of Mexico, the first from an opposition party ending the Institutional Revolutionary Party's 71-year reign. On this day in 2002, Steve Fawcett became the first person to fly solo around the world nonstop in a balloon. And on this day in 2009, India's high court decriminalized homosexuality striking down a 150-year colonial ban against gay sex between consenting adults. And happy 73rd birthday to Larry David, head writer and co-creator of Seinfeld. I'm a big fan of Seinfeld. Thank you to Larry David for his contribution to that. And with that, that's our show for the day. Thank you so much for joining us. Peace and love, y'all. Choose happiness and be excellent to each other. 